Welcome back to the Resurrection Church Podcast, week 32, Reading and Walking Every Day with Jesus. Uh, We're finishing Second Chronicles this week, as well as going through parts of Romans. But we will start our time um, in Second Chronicles. Matthew, how you doing? Doing great. Aaron, how are you doing? I'm doing great, guys. How are you? Phenomenal. Still good. Nice. It's good to see you guys. Good to be back in the studio um, recording for the very first time this week. Recording successfully for the first time. This well, week. it's still this w- first time this week. Yeah. We recorded oh. another time last week. Yeah, those who listen may not know that for the first time ever, our recording was so bad. And not like because there was a technology failure, but because there was an us failure that it we made the judgment call that it would not be worth anyone listening to that episode. So we're redoing it, jumping back into Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles, we've got Hezekiah, and uh, he restores the temple. Aaron, what do you think about that? Well, we get into the restoration of the temple with the good king, Hezekiah. And over and over again, we see Hezekiah attending to the worship of the Lord. And we start to understand that every reformation of God's people involves a reformation of their worship and their relationship to God fundamentally, attending to his word and his will. So it might be good for us to think about our own lives in the many reformations that we all experience as we go through seasons where we fail to attend to worshiping God and obeying his will. Um, As you guys think about your life, how have you experienced those reformations? Or can you identify points in your life where it seemed like you had a a Hezekiah sort of moment? I assume the Hezekiah moments are the good moments. Yeah, so there's times where he had to kind of cleanse the temple and get all the idols out of the temple and kind of reform the worship, you know, change things. So... Hezekiah moments are great. (laughs) Moving on to the New Testament. (laughs) Somehow still better than last week. What did he say something? Hezekiah moments. So, AJ, what would you consider the Hezekiah moments to be as we ponder this and answer the question? Yeah, I don't... No major moments come to mind personally. It's more of a many moments all the time weekly, daily, where you're not as vigilant as you'd like in your spiritual walk or um, you're lazy or lax in your fight for treasuring Jesus above all and whatever thing you encounter that makes you repent and um, turn back to God, I think that's stuff that happens all the time. So I think it's just being attentive to that and those are... Well, I guess just kind of, I mean a bit like what you said, but ups and downs and being like oh man i suck for a while like i should like change stuff or something i don't know kind of like that maybe if it's like if he's cleaning house you know sometimes you got to clean house in your own life and then after a while things get out of order and then you're like oh man constantly you know trying to keep with the upkeep spiritually you know when we get to the end of chapter 29 the verse says that Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced because God had prepared for the people for this thing came about suddenly. 
And that last phrase came about suddenly, just made me stop and think about, well, why was that included? You know, it seemed like they were not expecting God, God to do this work. Um, and I think that's instructive for us to, even when things are maybe don't seem like things are going the right way or, you know, we can expect God to work and sometimes it's very suddenly. That's true. I didn't notice that verse. That is, that is good to point out. Well, as we conclude our reflections on Second Chronicles, I wanted to get your guys' ideas about uh, what to make of the fact that so many kings who initially so show some promise in following after the Lord end their life failing to maintain steadfast love and faithfulness for the Lord. What should we learn about this? How should we think about our lives? How should we think about uh, the relationships that we have as young people with older believers as we reflect on on individuals who over and over again at the end of their life um, or as they age leave leave faithfulness to the Lord? It's not about how you start. It's all about how you finish. goes with life and whatever that saying originally went with. I think a lot of times you reach a point where, especially if you had a great spiritual victory or a you know, you worked through something in your life and which is great, you know, you're happy about it, but then you can get complacent about it. I'm, I'm where God wants me now, but none of us are perfect and we won't be, but we do have to continue to conform ourselves to the image of Christ with the Spirit's help. And I think a lot of times that, you know, you can understand how someone would, you know, not pay attention to their spiritual health or think that they have figured out and have arrived. So you could see to where sin would creep in then in that pride. Yeah. I wonder also too, the longer you live, the longer and more opportunity more opportunities are for just things to happen in life or things go bad or yeah, just you have more time to experience life and a lot of life is can be bad. There's disease and betrayal and all kinds of things that can kind of bring you down. And so, you know, I think in certain situations it could be possible where it's like you just get worn down by life and the negative sides of life and then just kind of, I don't know, gradually drift or lose hope or something or start to get bitter, start to doubt God's goodness or something like that because of the way that life can go sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's right. Probably on one end of the spectrum, people fail to maintain faithfulness to the Lord because they become somewhat cynical or just weary of the hardships in life. And then maybe on the other hand, like a lot of these kings, they start to enjoy the fruit of their labors, so to speak. They worked hard at their job, and now they've got retirement and a little bit of time to just relax and have time for themselves finally. And in mirroring the ideal retirement life in, in the American dream of now life is all about me again. There's a temptation to live for self instead of living for the Lord. Yeah, that makes sense. The end of Second Chronicles ends on a curiously hopeful note. And I say it's curiously hopeful because it's King Cyrus 
who now has been given all the kingdoms of the earth by the Lord and is instructed to build a temple at Jerusalem. So it's hopeful because it looks like the temple will be rebuilt and any of God's people may go up and the Lord his God will be with him. But what's curious is that it's the king of Persia who's saying this. And it reminds me of the words of Isaiah in Isaiah 59, where the Lord is lamenting that there are none righteous. And so he appoints a mighty arm uh, who will come to Zion, and those in Jacob will turn from transgression. That's the Lord's declaration. It seems like this starts to to happen through Cyrus, but ultimately we know that the Lord's declaration, the Lord's strong arm, will be Jesus who goes up and restores the temple in a new and surprising way. You'll notice that it's addressed to the Romans who might be in a a little-known town called Rome, little out-of-the-way location that a lot of people don't know about, but there was a place called Rome. They thought they were a big deal, and um, Paul wrote a letter to Christians there. And some say, you know, maybe there's proof for this, maybe there's not. Some say that this lady... Phoebe carried the letter from Paul to the church at Rome and read it to them. Uh, But regardless, there's a letter to the Christians in Rome. In the first chapter of Romans, Aaron, what do you make of Paul's reference to Habakkuk 2? Verse 4? Is that Yeah, I think specifically I'd be interested to know what you think about verse 4. Yeah, that's a really insightful question, and I'm glad that you brought it up because AJ and I were talking about this um, on the connection between Habakkuk 2.4 and Paul's quotation here in Romans, and then maybe even Paul's quotation in Galatians and the way that the author of Hebrews quotes this verse but uses slightly different language. That the righteous weren't actually that righteous. Yeah, so if you remember in the context of Habakkuk, there are righteous people who are almost accusing God of not being faithful to them, of not maintaining his side of the covenant promises. And he responds to them by pointing out, you're actually not being faithful to me. You think you're righteous, but you aren't really righteous at all. So my lack of blessing you, what looks like my word has failed you, is not a failure on my part. It's actually a failure on your part. My word is going to be faithful, and in fact, anyone who's going to find life and flourishing will do it by my faithfulness to my word and by their faith in my faithfulness to my word. So he's really trying to communicate, you need to maintain covenant faithfulness with me, and that's where you'll find your life. So it's interesting that Paul uses this quote to launch into this idea of God's righteousness being revealed and God's wrath being revealed. And then to go on and to point out that Jews and Gentiles are equally unrighteous in their standing before the Lord, even if they think for whatever reason, whether because of their Jewish heritage or some other reason, that they are the righteous ones. He says, you're, you're not that righteous. So I like to say that most of the quotations in Romans act as portals back to the Old Testament context. So whenever you see at least in the CSB, it's in bold. Different translations highlight quotations in different ways. But you can almost trace that and travel back to the Old Testament context. And if you look at the wider context, 
you can start to understand why Paul would appeal to this text. Now, as a little bit of an exception to that, sometimes we'll get into these sections where there are just long quotations, like from different places. I think something else is going on there. Uh, usually it's just sit, trying to show an overwhelming amount of evidence from the Old Testament to make his point. But then also sometimes you'll get to sections where he'll quote something from the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, and then something from the writings, so something like a psalm, and then something from the prophets. And that's almost a device to show that the whole of Israel's scriptures, the law, the writings, and the prophets are backing him up. Hmm. So those I don't think act as much of a portal that brings in a huge amount of Old Testament context. It's more of like the weight of the argument is there because the in every section of the Hebrew Bible, there's evidence that supports what he says. We'll have to find an example of that because that, that's really interesting to me. I, I want to see. Yeah, I mean, I think an example shows up pretty early when he's talking about Abraham and then he shifts to talk about David in chapter four. So you have Torah, the writings, and then you have... Um, later on, maybe we get into the prophets, maybe not. I don't remember if in that section they do, but definitely you'll notice places where he's quoting from all three sections of, of the Old Testament. Yeah, he mentions David in 4.6 as he was talking about Abraham also. Yeah, absolutely. We were talking before, you know, there's a lot of different points that Paul's making, but can we can we give it an overarching summary? Yeah, I think we need to clear the field first and disabuse people of the notion that Romans is a full systematic theology written by Paul, or it's like the climax of his theology or something like that. Because if we start to say that the theology, the doctrine that Paul cared about most is articulated most clearly in Romans, then we run into issues because I don't think he ever references the resurrection, at least not clearly. But then in 1 Corinthians, he tells us that the resurrection of Christ following the death on our behalf for our sins and our own resurrection is what's of first importance, of, of greatest importance. So Romans is a really, really important letter. But we could wrongly think that what's most important to Paul is expressed most clearly here, so this is the letter for understanding Paul's theology. I, I just don't think that's the case. He, he doesn't talk a, about a lot of things that he cares about in here. Sure. But, you know, the gospel is a main part of this book, and, that's so, and it is so with other books, too. But yeah, I think okay, it one, is. I've got a, I've got a huge list of like quotations from theologians that are like Romans is the it's the best book ever. Yeah, and I think those people aren't wrong totally. No, I just wanted your um, opinion on Yeah, my opinion is this. We live in a certain slice of Christian history and in a certain sector of it and in the development of our tradition post-reformation Christians, Protestants what Paul wrote in Romans and Galatians was definitional for the Reformation and eventually separation from the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church. I think Romans and Galatians have always been important, 
But when you read a lot of older theologians, it seems like the Gospels might be of greater importance than Romans. And um, we can, because we're rightly celebrating the good of the Reformation, start to make Romans like the central thing in the Bible when that's not really the place that it should hold. Uh, It's part of a a whole New Testament, and we need to take it in stride. Mm -hmm. But it is important. It is clear. I guess another problem I have with an overemphasis on Romans is that if you're trying to get at what Paul is doing with Romans— He is expressing theological truth, but he's trying to bring about unity for the glory of God in a congregation where there are individuals in conflict over ideas of what it means to have good standing before God. So there were Jews or Gentiles who were convinced that they needed to adopt Jewish practices in order to gain God's favor or stand closer to God than other people. And you have other Christians in the church at Rome who felt like they had a lot of freedom in Christ to live in in different ways, but still honor and worship the Lord. And this church is divided. So Paul is laying the groundwork of theology to show, look, you're equally unrighteous. You're equally in need of God. And you can now, once you understand that and come to union in Christ, share in Christ equally together. So it is important, but some of the issues that he's trying to deal with have to do with issues that we aren't really wrestling with in the same way. No no one in our American church, at least not our context, is saying um, we shouldn't be eating meat. We should be following kosher food laws because that is going to put us into a better standing before the Lord. Mm-hmm. Well, that we're not facing that issue really. So there are some places where maybe Romans is going to speak more decisively to the daily moment. I just don't know if that's the case um, here right now. When in Rome, say it's the most important letter there is. So Romans chapter 1, verse 5. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles. So in the ESV, it says among all the nations. And so I was just curious, what what should we take from that? How does Resurrection Church bring about the obedience of faith to the nations? Well, I'd say we are part of the nations. Yeah. That's in view here. Mm-hmm. Gentiles, nations, it's the same word. Just even in our CSB, you look at the footnote and it says or nations. You know, it's... It's a little bit complicated why we translate it in different ways. But um, Paul, of course, is called to share the gospel with the Jew first and also with the Gentiles, spreading it around the world. And uh, if you remember in our reading from Acts, he preached the gospel to the Gentiles and told them to do works in keeping with repentance. So Paul believes that you should work out your faith in your action. But here I think is an important thing where we need to pay attention to the way that Paul phrases things. Because in Romans, sometimes he's talking about works of obedience, like right here, right? Or the obedience of faith. And sometimes he's talking about the works of the law, that is maintaining Torah. And we can wrongly start to say, Paul 
is like this free grace guy, just pray a prayer and you're in. That's not who Paul is. He's saying do works in keeping with repentance, but he's not saying do the works of the law. Uh, instead, he's saying be transformed by the gospel and work out your salvation. So we should do that as well. Some of the working out, the obedience of faith, is living in unity with brothers and sisters who disagree with us about certain issues. So see Romans 14 and 15 on that. Um, at the end of Romans, Paul says that he believes that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So doing deeds of righteousness that put to death the deeds of the flesh. You know, there are all sorts of things we could fill into this category. Now, I would also want to note that there's a, there's a theory that uh, Paul is writing pretty much exclusively to Gentiles, and some Gentiles in the church have decided that they should start living like Jews in order to be more acceptable to the Lord. So as he starts out here and he talks about his calling to bring about the obedience of the sake, uh, of, for the sake of God's name among the Gentiles, that, you know, some of these Gentiles are wanting to say, if we keep the law, then we're a lot like the Jewish people. So that's why in chapter 2, verse 17, he says, now, if you call yourself a Jew, so for Gentiles who are like, ah, we need to keep the law, and we're, we're going to be more like Jews externally. But then he goes even further in chapter 2, verse 29, to argue that a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. So Maybe he's not saying this to ethnic Jews, but to Gentiles who are trying to identify as Jews through outward practice. He's saying, no, identify as Jewish people, true Israel maybe, by inward transformation that leads to external action. I don't know what to think about that theory. I was re- There's a podcast that you guys might be interested in called the Two Testament Podcast, Two Testaments Podcast, and they interviewed different scholars on each chapter of Job and on each chapter of Romans, and each scholar is you know, operating from slightly different perspectives, and they had a guy making this argument, and I thought it was at least interesting. I don't know enough about it to say if it's true or not. Did you have anything else on Romans? You're so, the Romans guy. Well, one, no. I was just telling Matthew, I cannot keep this book in my head. Here, let me walk you through Romans 1, 1, 1 through 6, Okay. You're going to be able to keep it in your head after this. Paul starts out with a greeting, introducing himself, giving a shorthand explanation of the gospel. Okay. Tracking so far. And then he briefly tells them, I really want to come visit you in person, but I can't get there right now. So I'm going to write to you a letter addressing some really important issues in your church. Okay. So he begins then by laying out the fact that every person is unrighteous before God. It doesn't matter if you keep Jewish law. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile. uh, You're unrighteous before God. But the good news is that God's righteousness that you lack is revealed through the gospel, through Jesus Christ. Uh, So so that's chapters one and two pretty much. Like, we all have issues— External circumcision and law-keeping isn't going to do it. Uh, You need something done on the inside, and God is doing that through Jesus Christ, through through the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. Now, in chapter 3, 
someone raises an objection. So you have to pay attention. There are some questions that are raised throughout Romans, and scholars call this Paul's interlocutor. And it's an imaginary person that Paul is drawing into the debate. So if you've ever read any of Plato or Socrates' dialogues, sometimes there will be people who they have asked questions just so they can give a good answer, okay? So the first question is, okay, if Jews and Gentiles are equally bad, what advantage does a Jew have in their standing before God? What, what does circumcision do for someone anyway? And Paul surprisingly answered, they have a great advantage. They were entrusted with the very words of God. And even if they've been unfaithful, God's word isn't faithful. So, or isn't unfaithful. You know, God's word is always faithful. So Jews have a great advantage. They've had God's word for a really, really long time. But here's the problem. Jews have been unfaithful. People who have received God's word have been unfaithful. So now their condemnation is really well-deserved. So we're back to square one. It's not that God's unfaithful. It's not that the way that he's related to people in the past have been, you know, riddled with problems. People are the problem, and the whole world is guilty before God. But he gets back to this idea in 321 that he introduced in chapter 1, and that's that the righteousness of God has been revealed. And in fact, it's proved in the law and the prophets. So it's been around the whole time. So it is of great advantage to be a Jew. Um, But the righteousness of God, this is verse 22 of chapter 3, is through faith in Jesus Christ, or as you'll see in the footnote, through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And I think that's a better reading. So he's trying to say, look, God has reached out to you in the law and the prophets, uh, but you have been unfaithful. But the good news is that where you've been unfaithful, Jesus has been faithful. Where you fall short of the glory of God, Jesus doesn't fall short of the glory of God. So you need to connect to Jesus. You need to commit to him. You need to swear your allegiance to Jesus as the king of Israel who will become the king of the world. Because as we've seen throughout in Kings and Chronicles, Israel always goes the way of the king, right? So if the king does righteousness, the people follow. If the king fails, the people fail. Well, King Jesus doesn't fail, so connect to him, because as as goes the king, so goes the people. That's kind of the idea by connecting it to law and prophets. Does that make sense? Yeah. I thought you were going to say, well, never mind. Go ahead. Well, in any case, he then asks the question, "What? where then is boasting? Can anyone boast in who they are? No. That's all done away with. More than that, he's bringing up the issue that they're not nullifying the law. They're not just ex- like getting rid of it as if God never gave the law. He's just recognizing now the law has been fulfilled perfectly in Christ. So then we get to chapter four. Oh. But any comments or questions up to this point? Yeah, I feel like we got bogged down a little in chapter three. That's all. Okay. <laughs> Let me give a one-sentence summary of chapter three. Okay, there we go. Okay, people who are concerned that God gave a fallible way of maintaining faithfulness with him, the problem isn't with God's law. The problem is with you. But where you were unfaithful to God, Jesus was perfectly faithful to God. That's a good sentence. I think I used like three, but 
if I take out all the periods, it's just a run-on right. sentence. You can run on. Which is like all. what Paul does. Right. So then we get to chapter four. One sentence, chapter four. Chapter four in one sentence. This is a challenge at this point. No, 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 I no. Like no. It. Well, yeah, it is a challenge, but I think I can. I think I can do it. Right. Okay. Yeah. Here's here's my one sentence. All right. Chapter four. Paul answers the objection that Abraham was justified and he got circumcised, so shouldn't we all get circumcised, by saying that Abraham was declared as righteous prior to his circumcision. So external circumcision and law-keeping doesn't produce righteousness before God, but faith does. Period. Period. Nice. And that's what goes on in, in chapter 4. He says, look, it's silly for you to think that you are going to inherit the kingdom of God by being circumcised because Abraham was declared as righteous and promised the kingdom of God before he got circumcised, before he kept the law, before the law was ever given. So be like your father Abraham and live by faith. All right, I'm upping the challenge. Chapter 5 in five words. Chapter 5 in five words. Okay, here it goes. Wait, only five words. Yeah. Okay. Or if you want to write a short haiku about it, that is also acceptable. Oh, I couldn't do that on the spot. Here's here's my five words. Okay, can I do it in 10? (laughs) All right, yeah. Okay. Adam's sin killed us all. Jesus's righteousness saves us all. You could have said everyone and then like elephant or something. Oh, you would have had a word left, but that was good. That was good. I like that. Does that work? Yeah. So, you know, the longer way of going about this is, um, He's contrasting the first Adam who sinned and ruined everything. And he's trying to say, all of you are part of Adam's family. You know, you you Jews who keep saying, well, Abraham's our father and he was righteous. Therefore, we're automatically righteous. Paul's saying, nope, you got to trace your genealogy back a few more generations to Adam. And you're his child and you're all sinners. You need a new family line, and that family line you can have through Jesus Christ. And any who leave the line of Adam and join the family line of Christ by faith will receive fullness of life instead of fullness of death. Now, I want to make one further comment on that. I think when we talk about what it means to be saved, often we talk about getting eternal life. And we do it because we're reading texts like Romans 5, 20 and 21. But if we're going to use Paul's connection to Adam, we need to remember that just as Adam brought death into the world, it started with spiritual death and culminated in physical death. Well, if we're being adopted into Jesus's family, it's going to start with spiritual life and end in the resurrection, ongoing physical life. 
So we're participating in the eternal life that's promised for members of Jesus's family in our spiritual renewal in this life. Um, so becoming a Christian isn't just about what happens after you die. It's more fundamentally what happens in your life. That's a good point. Now we get to chapter six. In one of the ways that I'm going to prove what I just said about this issue of death and life fundamentally being about spiritual death and life or participation in the life of God is that Paul in chapter six gets into this whole discussion about your new life in Christ. And that new life in Christ has very little to do with getting to heaven when you die, but how you're living right now. You've been baptized into Christ because you've already died with him in your baptism. We could talk for a long time about Paul's theology of baptism here in in the indication that baptism actually does something and you're actually doing something in your baptism. Um, But he he wants us to think not so much about a future resurrection after we've physically died, but about the present resurrection that we're already living in. That's what he says in verse 5. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, that's during our baptism, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. And then he talks about our old self being crucified, death no longer ruling over, but now new life guiding us. So we live, in a sense, in a spiritual resurrection right now. And then he goes on later in the chapter saying, how come some of you are still living like you're a slave to death when to sin when you've been raised to new life? That's chapter 6. So he's saying, look, you were all wicked. You all need Jesus. Well, you've got Jesus, so why are you still looking elsewhere? This fits in very well with Josh's sermon from Sunday. I liked the words that Paul used about being a slave to sin and slave to righteousness. I thought that was really helpful. It was a good good way to say it. How did that help you? It seemed like just reading a whole section about that made me think that specific sins, which people tend to focus on, is just a symptom of being under the dominion of sin, or however you say it, like a larger sway of sin. I don't know. But then, you know, it's your orientation. It's your, like, I was trying to think of it in a broader, not like I'm focusing on a sin in my life, but like focusing on like... More of a holistic view of your spiritual life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I like that because I think what Paul is doing here is creating an allusion to the Exodus event where Israel was enslaved to Pharaoh and was set free, but regularly started thinking about all the the gleeks and the onions and the garlics, and uh, they didn't want to live according to the bread of life, the bread from heaven. They wanted to go back to their former ways. Um, And it's that larger picture of redemption and exodus that we need to keep in mind when we think about our new life. We we just have it in a greater way, and sometimes that's hard to believe. Okay, AJ, now that we've walked through it, does that help you keep your place as you're thinking about the progression and argument of the Book of Romans? Yeah, Aaron, it's really helpful. Thanks. You're the best. (laughs) You kind of said that in such a force and foe sort of way. I thought what Matthew was asking you was a good thing that everybody should do if they're yeah. having that same problem that I am having. 
and force yourself to write a summary or try to summarize it in one sentence or 10 words or whatever it is, I think that's a good exercise to do. And I think that's something I need to do too. Yeah. It's not like I didn't read this. Like well, yeah. And I think it, I think if you structure it with like taking Paul's statement and then outlining the questions or quote unquote questions that come after it, mm-hmm. then you'll be able to trace the argument and get into some things that I didn't even get into. So for example, when he's telling them, look, the law came to multiply your sin because where there was a ton of sin, God's grace multiplied even more. So it would bring about eternal life where there was death because grace is bigger than your death, than your sin. So then in chapter 6, verse 1, here's the like interlocutor's question. Well, if that's the case, if God's grace grows greater whenever there's sin, shouldn't we just keep on sinning so that more grace will happen? Isn't that going to give more glory to God? And that's where he gets into his answer of like, okay, that's a dumb question because you've been raised to new life. So do you want to die all over again? You're freed. You've been freed from Egypt. Do you want to go back? No, that's silly. This is bad thinking. So if you track each of those questions, um, it kind of helps clarify his argument along the way. But it also starts to feel somewhat redundant at times. That's what Matthew was saying before the podcast. We were talking about the you know, just the different arguments that, that Paul's making. It seems like it's sometimes he is circling back or it, it is a little redundant, but you know, I think that's just because they're related to each other, the stuff that he's talking the points that he's trying to make. Yeah. So if you can take the question and then summarize in one sentence his response, then it will help boil everything down. So in chapter 6, verse 1, the question is, should we continue in sin so that grace would multiply? And if you can take the verses 3 all the way through 14 and summarize it into one answer, which is basically no, then when you get to the next question in verse 15, should we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? It's a similar question, but slightly different. So one is, should we keep sinning so that more grace will happen? The second one is, can we keep sinning because we're not under the law anymore? It's just a slightly different question, but it gets pretty much the exact same answer. So all of chapter 6 is saying, don't abuse God's grace and keep on sinning. It's just proof that you haven't actually received it. Thank you for joining us this week on the Resurrection Wait, he Church. Had, he had some little things he wanted to hit real quick. No, we don't have to hit them. No, we do. They're, no, we don't. Dude, we we need to hear from you, the the Romans guy. Stop saying that. I know. I just, you're you're I the just John guy. I can't understand anything. I know. You're the John guy. Okay, one thing. In 131, I liked the way one of this, this one translation translated verse 31 said unwise unfaithful unfeeling uncaring nice it's similar to csb senseless untrustworthy unloving and unmerciful they almost had it they needed another yeah they they needed unthinking unthinking yep it just kind of summarizes everything else above it too yeah i think so and apparently some manuscripts add unforgiving so you've got another unword i like it Anything else, guys, that you have on Romans? No. I mean, last time we talked about how God passed over the sins in the Old Testament. We don't need to. Yeah. That got us into a weird discussion about time. 
I still in, think about I've been the age of the that. earth. Yeah. I don't think about that part. But okay. The time thing. Yeah, time's crazy, man. Thank you for joining us this week on the Resurrection Church podcast, Reading and Walking Every Day with Jesus. If you'd like to know more about the podcast or the church or any other church-related things, you can visit our website, resurrectionmn.org.